President Calvin Coolidge is reputed to have won a bet once when someone asked him, I'll bet I can make you say three words. And Coolidge replied, you lost. He was regarded as a man of few words. I think I can do him one better tonight. The question I'm supposed to address is, can you prove the existence of God? I can do that in one word. Yes. But I'd better expand on that a little bit. There are at least a couple of dozen good proofs for the existence of God. I'd like to go through just four or five of them tonight. There's the argument from design, the first cause argument, the argument from conscience, and Pascal's wager. The argument starts with the major premise that where there is design, there must be a designer. The minor premise is the existence of design throughout the universe. The conclusion is that there must be a universal designer. Why must we believe the major premise that all design implies a designer? Well, everyone admits this principle in practice. For instance, suppose you came upon a deserted island and found the words SOS written in the sand on the beach. You would not think that wind or waves had written it by mere chance, but that someone had been there. Someone intelligent enough to design and write the message. If you found a stone hut on the island with windows, doors, and a fireplace, you would not think that a hurricane had piled up the stones that way by chance. You immediately infer a designer whenever you see design. When the first moon rocket took off from Cape Canaveral, two scientists stood watching it side by side. One was a theist, the other an atheist. The theist said, isn't it wonderful that our rocket is going to hit the moon by chance? The atheist objected, what do you mean chance? We put millions of man hours of design into that rocket. Oh, said the theist, you don't think chance is a good explanation for the rocket? Then why do you think it's a good explanation for the universe? There's much more design in a universe than in a rocket. We can design a rocket, but we couldn't design a universe. I wonder who can. <laughs> Later that day, the same two scientists were strolling down a street and passed an antique store. The atheist admired a picture in the window and asked, I wonder who painted that picture? The theist joked, no one, it just happened by chance. <laughs> Is it possible that design happens by chance without a designer? Well, according to the bumper sticker, you know what just happens. <laughs> but there is perhaps... The history of the Red Sox just happens. There is perhaps one chance in a trillion that SOS could be written in the sand by the wind. But who would use a one-in-a-trillion explanation? Someone once wrote that if you sat a million monkeys at a million typewriters for a million years, one of them would eventually type out all of Hamlet by chance. But when we find the text of Hamlet, we don't wonder whether it came from monkeys. Why then does the atheist use that incredibly improbable explanation for the universe? Clearly because it is his only chance of remaining an atheist. At this point, we need a psychological explanation of the atheist rather than a logical explanation of the universe. We have a logical explanation of the universe. The atheist doesn't like it. It's called God. There is one especially strong version of the argument from design that hits close to home because it's about the design of the very thing we use to think about design, our brains. The human brain is the most complex piece of design in the known universe. 
In many ways, it is like a computer. Now, just suppose there were a computer that was programmed only by chance. For instance, suppose you were in a plane, and the public address system announced that there was no pilot, but that the plane was being flown by a computer that had been programmed by a random fall of hailstones on its keyboard. <laughs> or by a baseball player in spiked shoes dancing on computer cards. How much confidence would you have in that plane? But if our brain computer has no cosmic intelligence behind the heredity and environment and whatever else, including natural selection, that may have programmed it, then why should we trust it when it tells us about anything, even about the brain, or heredity, or environment, or natural selection? Another especially strong aspect of the design argument is the so-called anthropic principle, according to which the universe seems to have been specially designed from the beginning for human life to evolve. If the temperature of the primeval fireball that resulted from the Big Bang some 15 to 20 billion years ago, which was the beginning of our universe, had been a trillionth of a degree colder or hotter, the carbon molecule that is the basis of all organic life could never have developed. The number of possible universes is trillions of trillions. Only one of them could support human life. This one sounds suspiciously like a plot. If the cosmic rays had bombarded the primordial slime at a slightly different angle, or time, or intensity, the hemoglobin molecule, necessary for all warm-blooded animals, could never have evolved. The chance of this molecule's evolving is something like one in a trillion. Add together each of the chances, and you have something far more unbelievable than a million monkeys riding Hamlet. There are relatively few atheists among neurologists and brain surgeons and among cosmologists and astrophysicists. But there are many atheists among sociologists, psychologists, and historians. The reason seems obvious. The first studied divine design, the second human undesign. But doesn't evolution explain everything without a divine designer? Just the opposite. Evolution is a beautiful example of divine design, a great clue to God. There is very good scientific evidence for the evolving ordered appearance of species, from simple to complex. But there is no scientific proof that natural selection was the only mechanism of evolution. Natural selection explains the emergence of higher forms without intelligent design by the survival of the fittest principle. But this is a theory. There is no evidence that abstract theoretical thinking, for instance, or altruistic love, has made it easier for man to survive. How did they evolve then? Furthermore, could the design that obviously now exists in us and in our brains come from something with less design or with no design alone? Such an explanation violates the principle of causality, which states that you can't get more in the effect than you had in the sum total of all its causes. If there is intelligence in the effect, humanity, there must be intelligence in the cause. But a universe ruled by blind chance has no intelligence. Therefore, there must be a cause for human intelligence that transcends the universe, a mind behind the physical universe. Most great scientists have believed in such a mind, by the way, even those who did not accept any revealed religion. Now, how much does this argument prove? A very thin slice of what a Christian means by God. But it proves a thick enough slice to refute the atheist. Some designing intelligence great enough to account for all the design in the universe and the human mind. Well, if that's not God, what is it?
It's not Steven Spielberg. A second and more difficult because more abstract argument for the existence of God is the first cause argument. Before going into the difficult form of it, let's just look at the simple, basic, intuitive, natural, commonsensical form of it. I think we all have to become rather clever in order to doubt it or to dispute it. Because it's based on an instinct of mind that we all share. The instinct that says everything needs an explanation. Nothing just is without a reason why it is. Everything that exists has some adequate or sufficient reason why it exists. Philosophers call this the principle of sufficient reason. We use it every day, in common sense and in science, as well as in philosophy. If you saw a rabbit suddenly appear on this empty table, you would not blandly say, Hi there, rabbit, you came from nowhere, didn't you? <laughs> no, you'd look for a cause. You would assume there has to be some cause. Did the rabbit fall from the ceiling? Was I a magician who had it up my sleeve? If there seems to be no physical cause, you would look then for a psychological cause. Perhaps there's no rabbit there. Perhaps you're being hypnotized or, being, or dreaming. As a last resort, you'd look for a supernatural cause, a miracle. God created the rabbit. But there must be some cause. We never deny the principle of sufficient reason itself. No one believes the pop theory that things just pop into existence for no reason at all. Perhaps we will never find the cause, but there must be a cause for everything that comes into existence. Now, the entire universe is a vast interlocking chain of things that come into existence. Each of these things must therefore have a cause. My parents caused me, my grandparents caused them, etc. But it is not that simple. I would not be here without billions of causes, from the Big Bang through the cooling of the galaxies and the evolution of the protein molecule to the marriages of my ancestors. The universe is a vast and complex chain of causes. Now, does the universe as a whole have a cause? Is there a first cause, an uncaused cause, an eternal cause, a transcendent cause of the whole imminent chain of causes? If not then there is an infinite regress of causes with no first link in the great cosmic chain. If so, then there is an eternal, necessary, independent, self-explanatory being with nothing above it, nothing before it, nothing supporting it. It would explain itself as well as everything else. For if it needed something else as its explanation, its reason, its cause, then it would not be the first and uncaused cause. Such a being could be called God. If we can prove there is such a first cause, we will have proved that there is some sort of God. Now, why must there be a first cause? Because if there isn't, then the whole universe is unexplained. And we have violated our principle of sufficient reason for everything. If there is no first cause, each particular thing in the universe is explained by some other thing. But the universe as a whole is not explained. Everyone and everything in the universe says in turn, don't look to me for the final explanation. I'm just an instrument. Something else caused me. But if that's all there is, beings that say that, then we have an endless buck-passing universe. God is the one who says the buck stops here. One more analogy. Suppose I tell you there is a book that explains everything you want explained. 
you want that book very much. You ask me whether I have it. I say, no, I have to get it from my wife. Does she have it? Well, no, she has to get it from a neighbor. Does he have it? No, he has to get it from his teacher, who has to get it from, etc., etc., ad infinitum. No one actually has the book. In that case, you will never get it. However long or short the chain of book borrowers may be, you will get the book only if someone actually has it and does not have to borrow it. Well, existence is like that book. Existence is handed down the chain of causes, from cause to effect. If there is no first cause, no being who is eternal and self-sufficient, no being who has existence by his own nature and does not have to borrow it from something else, then the gift of existence can never be passed down the chain to others, and no one will ever get it. But we did get it. We exist. We got the existence. The gift of existence from our causes down the chain. And so did every actual being in the universe, from atoms to archangels. Therefore, there must be a first cause of existence, a God. St. Thomas Aquinas has a number of versions of this basic argument. I think the most interesting is the third way. He argues that if there were no eternal, necessary, and immortal being... If everything had a possibility of being or not being, and thus a possibility of ceasing to be, then eventually this possibility of ceasing to be would be realized for everything. If everything could die, then given infinite time, everything would eventually die. But in that case, nothing could start up again. We would have universal death. For a being that has ceased to exist cannot cause itself or anything else to begin to exist again. And if there is no God, then there must have been infinite time. The universe must have always been here, with no beginning and no first cause. But this universal death has not happened. Things do exist. Therefore, there must be a necessary being that cannot not be, cannot possibly cease to be. Another description of God. How can anyone get out of the tight logic of this argument? Well, here are four ways in which philosophers try. First, many say that the proofs don't prove God at all, but only some vague first cause or other. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is not the God of philosophers and scholars, writes Pascal, who was a passionate Christian but did not think you could prove God's existence logically. Well, it's true that the proofs do not by any means prove everything the Christian means by God. But they do prove a transcendent, eternal, uncaused, immortal, self-existing, independent, all-perfect being. That sounds rather like God. It's a pretty thick slice of him anyway. Second objection is that some philosophers, like David Hume, say that the concept of cause is ambiguous and not applicable beyond the physical universe to God. How dare we use the same term for what clouds do to rain, what parents do to children, what authors do to books, and what God does to the universe. The answer is that the concept of cause is analogical. That is, it differs somewhat, but not completely, from one example to another. Human fatherhood is a bit like divine fatherhood, and physical causality is a bit like divine causality, but also unlike the way an author conceives a book in his mind is not exactly the same way as a woman conceives a baby in her body either. But we call both causes. In fact, we even call both conceptions. 
The objection is right to point out that we do not fully understand how God causes the universe, as we do understand how parents cause children or clouds cause rain. But the term remains meaningful. A cause is the sine qua non for an effect. If no cause, no effect. If no first cause, no second causes. If no creator, no creation. If no God, no universe. Third, it is sometimes argued, as Bertrand Russell does, that there is a self-contradiction in the first cause argument. For one of the premises is that everything needs a cause, but the conclusion is that there is something, God, which does not need a cause. The child who asks, who made God, is really thinking of this objection. The answer is very simple. The argument does not use the premise that everything needs a cause. Everything that comes to be needs a cause. Everything that is born needs a cause. Everything that changes needs a cause. Everything dependent needs a cause. Finally, it is often asked why there can't be infinite regress with no first being. Infinite regress is perfectly acceptable in mathematics. Negative numbers go on to infinity just as positive numbers do. So why can't time be like the number series with no highest number, either negatively, no first in the past, or positively, no last in the future? The answer is that real beings are not like numbers. They need causes. For the chain of real beings moves in one direction only, from past to future. And things in the future are caused by things in the past. But positive numbers are not caused by negative numbers. Actually, there is a parallel in the number series for a first cause, the number one. If there were no first positive integer, no unit one, there could be no subsequent addition of units. Two is two ones, three is three ones, and so on. If there were no first, there could be no second or third. If the argument is getting too tricky, the thing to do is to return to what is sure and clear, the intuitive point I began with. Not everyone can understand all the abstract details of the first cause argument, but everyone can understand its basic point. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, I felt in my bones that this universe does not explain itself. A third and rather more interesting argument is the argument from conscience. The simple, intuitive point of the argument from conscience is that everyone in the world knows, deep down, that he or she is absolutely obligated to be good and to do good. And this absolute obligation could come only from God. Thus, everyone implicitly knows God, however obscurely by this moral intuition, which we usually call conscience. Conscience is the voice of God in the soul. Like all arguments for the existence of God, this one proves only a small part of what we know God to be by divine revelation and faith, but this part is significantly more than the arguments from nature, the first cause argument or even the design argument, because this argument has richer data, a richer starting point. Here we have inside information, so to speak. The very will of God speaking, however obscurely and whisperingly, however poorly heard or admitted or heeded, in the depths of our souls. The arguments from nature begin with data that are like an author's books. The argument from conscience begins with data that are more like talking with the author live. Now, nearly everyone will admit the existence of conscience and also its authority. Even in this age of moral relativism and rebellion against and doubt about nearly every authority, 
the age in which the very word authority has changed from a word of respect to a word of scorn, one authority remains, an individual's conscience. I have never met anyone who says that one ought to sin against one's conscience. One ought to disobey one's conscience. Disobey the church, disobey the state, parents, authority figures, but don't disobey your conscience. Thus, people usually admit, though not usually in these words, the absolute moral authority and binding obligation of conscience. So one of the two premises of the argument is established. Conscience has an absolute authority. The second premise is that the only possible source of absolute authority is an absolutely perfect will, a divine being. The conclusion follows that such a being exists. Now, it's the second premise that's controversial. How would someone disagree with the second premise? By finding an alternative basis for conscience besides God. There are only four such possibilities. Something abstract and impersonal, like an idea. Something concrete but less than human, something on the level of animal instinct. Or something on the human level but not yet divine. Or finally, something higher than the human level but not divine. In other words, we cover all the possibilities by looking at the abstract, the concrete less than human, the concrete human, and the concrete more than human. The first possibility, something abstract, means that the basis of conscience is a law without a lawgiver. We are obligated absolutely to an abstract ideal, a pattern of behavior. The question then comes up, where is this pattern? If it does not exist anywhere, how can a real person be under the authority of something unreal? How can more be subject to less? If, however, this pattern or idea exists in the minds of people, then what authority do they have to impose this idea of theirs on me? If the idea is only an idea, if it has no personal will behind it, if it, only, it is only somebody's idea, then it has only that somebody behind it. And then we do not have a sufficient basis for absolute, infallible, no exceptions authority. But we already admitted that conscience has that authority. The second possibility, the concrete less than human, means that we trace conscience to a biological instinct. W.H. Auden writes, we must love one another or die. We unconsciously know this, just as animals unconsciously know that unless they behave in certain ways, the species will not survive. That's why animal mothers sacrifice for their children. And that's a sufficient explanation for human altruism, too. It's simply the herd instinct. Well, the problem with that explanation is that it does not account for the absoluteness of conscience's authority. We believe we ought to disobey an instinct, any instinct, on some occasions. But we do not believe that we ought ever to disobey our conscience. You should usually obey instincts like mother love... But not if it means keeping your son back from risking his life to save his country in a just and necessary defensive war. Or if it means injustice and lack of charity to other mother's sons. There is no instinct that should always be obeyed. The instincts, C.S. Lewis says, are like the keys on a piano and the moral law is like sheet music. Different notes are right at different times. In other words, the relativity of instincts presupposes the absoluteness of the music. Honest introspection, I think, will reveal to anyone that conscience is not simply an instinct. When the alarm wakes you up early and you realize that you promised to help your friend this morning, your instincts pull you back to bed. 
but something quite different from your instincts tells you to get up. Even when you feel two instincts pulling you, for instance, you're both hungry and tired, the conflict between these two instincts is quite different and can be felt to be quite different from the conflict between conscience and either or both of those instincts. Conscience tells you that you ought to do or not do something, while instincts simply drive you to do or not do something. Conscience is a pull, instincts are pushes. Instincts make something attractive or repulsive to your appetites, but conscience makes something obligatory to your choice, no matter how your appetites feel about it. I think most people will admit this piece of obvious introspective data if they are honest. If they try to wiggle out of the argument at this point, we must leave them alone with the question. And I think if they're honest, they'll confront the data when they're alone. The third possibility of explaining conscience without God is the merely human. Other human beings or society are the source of the authority of conscience. That's probably the most popular belief. But it's the weakest of all four possibilities. For society does not mean something over and above other human beings. Society is not something like God. Although many people treat society exactly like God, even in speech, almost lowering their voice to a whisper when the sacred name is mentioned, capitalizing the S. Society is simply other people, like myself. What authority do they have over me? Are they always right? Must I never disobey them? What kind of blind status quo conservatism is this? Should a German have obeyed society in the Nazi era? To say society is the source of conscience is to say that when one prisoner becomes a thousand prisoners, they become the judge. It is to say that mere quantity gives absolute authority. That what the individual has in his soul is nothing, no authoritative conscience, but that what society, that is, many individuals, has, is authoritative conscience. That's simply a logical impossibility. Like thinking that stones can think if you only have enough of them. Some proponents of artificial intelligence believe exactly that kind of logical fallacy, by the way, that electrons and computer chips and chunks of metal can think only if you have enough of them in the right geometrical arrangements. The fourth possibility remains that the source of conscience's authority is something above me but not God. What could this be? Perhaps if I'm a child, it may be my parents who are older and wiser than me, but if I'm an adult, society is not above me, nor is instinct. An ideal, that's the first possibility we discussed. It's something abstract. It just looks as if there are no candidates in this area. And that leaves us with God. And not just any sort of God, but the moral God. The God of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. The God of the Bible. Among the ancient peoples, the Jews were the only ones who identified their God with the source of moral obligation. An amazing discovery. Either they did it and were the cleverest people on earth, or God did it and God simply chose them. The gods of the pagans demanded ritual worship and inspired fear and even designed the universe or ruled over the events in human life, but none of them ever gave a Ten Commandments. None of them ever said, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Jews saw the origin of nature and the origin of conscience as one. And Christians and Muslims have inherited this insight. To sum up the argument most simply and essentially, conscience has absolute, exceptionless, binding moral authority over us, demanding unqualified obedience. 
but only a perfectly good, righteous, divine will can have this authority and right to absolute, exceptionless obedience. Therefore, conscience is the voice of God, the voice of God's will. Of course, we don't always hear that voice of right. Our consciences can err. That's why the first obligation we have in conscience is to form our conscience by seeking the truth. Especially the truth about whether this God has revealed to us clear moral maps. If he has, then whatever our conscience seems to tell us, we must obey these maps. When our conscience seems to tell us to disobey those maps, it is not working properly if the maps are from God. And we can know that by conscience itself. If only we remember that conscience is more than just feeling. If our immediate feelings were the voice of God, we would have to be polytheists, or else God would have to be a schizophrenic. I lied. I said I'd give you four arguments. I'm going to give you five. I have time to sneak a fifth one in. The argument from desire. C.S. Lewis's favorite argument. Major premise. Every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. Minor premise. There exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, no creature can satisfy. Conclusion. Therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth, and creatures which can satisfy this desire. That something is what people call God and life with God forever. The first premise, which says every natural or innate desire corresponds to a real object, implies a distinction of desires into two kinds, innate and externally conditioned, or natural and artificial. We naturally desire things like food, drink, sex, sleep, knowledge, friendship, and beauty. And we naturally shun things like starvation, loneliness, ignorance, and ugliness. We also desire, but not innately or naturally, things like fast sports cars, political office, flying through the air like Superman, the land of Oz, and uh, maybe even uh, the Texas Rangers in the World Series. Now, there are differences between these two kinds of desires. We do not, for example, recognize corresponding states of deprivation for the artificial desires as we do for the natural desires. There is no word like oslessness, parallel to sleeplessness. But more importantly, the natural desires come from within, from our nature. While the artificial desires come from without, from society or advertising or fiction. And the reason for this is that natural desires, uh, or rather, uh, as a result of this, the natural desires are found in all of us. But the artificial desires vary from one person to another. Now, the existence of artificial desires does not prove that the desired objects exist. Some do, some don't. Sports cars do, Oz does not. But the existence of natural desires does, in every discoverable case, mean that the objects desired exist. No one has ever found a single case of an innate desire for a non-existent object. Second premise, we have such a desire. A desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. If you deny that premise and you say, I am perfectly happy playing with mud pies or sports cars or money, sex, and power. I can only ask, are you really? The argument can't compel, it can only appeal. And I think we can 
refer such a person who denies this innate desire for something more to the nearly universal testimony of human literature. Even the atheist John Paul Sartre admitted, quote, there comes a time when one asks, even of Shakespeare, even of Beethoven, is that all there is? The conclusion of the argument is, again, a thin slice of God. Not by, all mean, by any means all that the Bible tells us about God. What it proves is an unknown X, but an unknown whose direction, so to speak, is known. This X is more, more beauty, more desirability, more joy, more awesomeness. This X is to great beauty as, for example, great beauty is to small beauty, or to a mixture of beauty and ugliness, and the same of other perfections. But this more is infinitely more. We are not satisfied with the finite and the partial. Uh, are you satisfied with knowing 500 things? Don't you want to know 501? How about 5 million things? You're never satisfied. Truth, goodness, and beauty are infinite. So the analogy that X is to great beauty as great beauty is to small beauty is not proportionate. 20 is to 10 as 10 is to 5, but infinity is not to 20 as 20 is to 10. So the argument points down an infinite corridor in a definite direction. The conclusion is not a God as you already conceive him or define him, but rather some moving and mysterious X, which is more God than your God, which pulls us to itself and pulls all our images and concepts out of themselves. In other words, the only concept of God in this argument is the concept of that which transcends concepts, something which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, which is exactly how the New Testament describes God. C.S. Lewis, who uses this argument in a number of places, summarizes it nicely this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Last argument, Pascal's wager. This is for skeptics. This is for people who think there are no arguments for the existence of God. Suppose someone terribly precious to you lay dying, and the doctor offered to try a new miracle drug that he could not guarantee, but that seemed to have a 50-50 chance of saving your beloved friend's life. Would it be reasonable to try it, even if it cost a bit of money? And suppose it were free. Wouldn't it be utterly unreasonable not to try it? Or suppose you hear reports that your house is on fire and your children are inside. You don't know whether these reports are true or false. What is the reasonable thing to do? To ignore them? Or to take the time to run home or at least phone home just in case the reports are true? Or suppose a winning sweepstakes ticket is worth a million dollars and there are only two tickets left, and you know that one of them is the winning ticket, while the other is worth nothing. And you're allowed to buy only one of those two tickets at random. Would it be a good investment to spend a dollar on the good chance of winning a million? No reasonable person can be or ever is in doubt in such cases. But, Pascal argues, deciding whether to believe in God is a case like these. It is therefore the height of folly not to bet on God even if you have no proof and no guarantee that your bet will win. 
Imagine you're playing a game for two prizes. You wager blue chips to win blue prizes and red chips to win red prizes. The blue chips are your mind, your reason. And the blue prize is the truth about God's existence. The red chips are your will, your desires. And the red prize is happiness in heaven. Everyone wants both prizes, truth and happiness. Now suppose, as the skeptic says, there is no way of calculating how to play the blue chips. Suppose your reason cannot prove the existence of God, cannot win you the truth. Ah, but you can still calculate how to play the red chips. Believe in God, Pascal says, not because your reason can prove with certainty that God exists, but because your will seeks happiness and God is your only chance of attaining what you want. Pascal writes, either God is or he is not. But to which view shall we be inclined? Reason cannot decide this question. Infinite chaos separates us. At the far end of an infinite distance, death, a coin is being spun that will come down heads or tails. God or no God? How then will you wager? The most powerful part of his argument, I think, comes next. It is not his refutation of atheism as a foolish wager, that's going to come later, but his refutation of agnosticism as existentially impossible. Agnosticism means not knowing, maintaining a skeptical, uncommitted attitude. That seems to be the most reasonable option. The agnostic says, the right thing is not to wager at all. Pascal's reply, ah, but you must wager. There is no choice, for you are already embarked. We are like ships that need to get home, sailing past a port that has signs on it proclaiming that that port is our true home and our true happiness. The ships are our lives, and the signs on the port say, God. The agnostic says he will neither put in at that port and believe, nor turn away from it and disbelieve, but he will stay anchored a reasonable distance away until the weather clears and he can see better whether this is the true port or a fake, for there are a lot of fakes around. Why is this attitude unreasonable? It's not unreasonable, it's impossible. Because we're moving. The ship of life is moving along the waters of time, and there comes a point of no return when our fuel runs out. When it is too late, Pascal's wager works above all because of the fact of death. Suppose Romeo proposes to Juliet, and Juliet says, give me some time to make up my mind. Suppose Romeo keeps coming back day after day, and Juliet keeps saying the same thing day after day, tomorrow. In the words of a small, female, red-haired American philosopher, tomorrow is always a day away. And there comes a time when there are no more tomorrows. Then, tomorrow, and maybe, becomes no. Romeo will die. Corpses do not marry. Christianity is God's marriage proposal to your soul. Saying maybe, and perhaps, and tomorrow, cannot continue indefinitely because your life does not continue indefinitely. The weather will never clear enough for the agnostic navigator to be sure whether the port is true home or false just by looking at it through binoculars from a distance. He has to take a chance on this port or some other, or else he will never get home. Once it is decided that he must wager, once it is decided that there are only two options, theism and atheism, not three, theism, atheism, and agnosticism, the rest of the argument is simple. 
Atheism is a terrible bet. It gives you no chance of winning the red prize. Pascal states the argument this way. He writes, you have two things to lose, the true and the good. Two things to stake, your reason and your will, your knowledge and your happiness. Your nature has two things to shun, error and wretchedness. Since you must necessarily choose, your reason is no more affronted by choosing one rather than the other. That is one point cleared up. Now what about your happiness? Let us weigh up the gain and the loss involved in calling heads that God exists. Let us assess the two cases. If you win, you win everything. If you lose, you lose nothing. Do not hesitate then. Wager that he exists. If God does not exist, it doesn't matter how you wager, for there's nothing to win after death and nothing to lose after death. But if God does exist, your only chance of winning eternal happiness is to believe, and your only chance of losing it is to refuse to believe. As Pascal says, I should be much more afraid of being mistaken and then finding out that Christianity is true than of being mistaken in believing it to be true. If you believe too much, you neither win nor lose eternal happiness. But if you believe too little, you risk losing everything. But is it worth the price? What must be given up to wager that God exists? What is this dollar that I need to spend to buy the sweepstakes ticket? Whatever it is, it's only finite. And it is most reasonable to wager something finite on the chance of winning an infinite prize. Perhaps you must give up autonomy or illicit pleasures. But you will gain infinite happiness in eternity. And Pascal says, I tell you, you will gain even in this life. Purpose, peace, hope, joy, the things that put smiles on the lips of martyrs. To the high-minded objector who refuses to believe for the low motive of saving the eternal skin of his own soul, we may reply that the wager works quite as well if we change the motive to a high motive. Let us say it does not depend upon the fear of damnation, but on justice. We want to give God his just due if there is a God. Well, if there is a God, justice demands total faith, hope, love, obedience, and worship. If there is a God and we refuse to give him these things, we sin maximally against truth and justice. But the only chance of doing infinite justice is if God exists and we believe. While the only chance of doing infinite injustice is if God exists and we do not believe. If God does not exist, there is no one there to do infinite justice or injustice to. So the motive of doing justice moves the wager just as well as the motive of seeking happiness. Pascal used the more selfish motive because we have that going for us all the time. While only some of us are motivated by justice and only some of the time and rather weakly. Because the whole argument moves on the practical level rather than the theoretical level, it is fitting that Pascal finally imagines the listener offering the practical objection that he just cannot bring himself to believe. Pascal then answers the objection with stunningly practical psychology, with the suggestion that the prospective convert act into his belief if he cannot yet act out of it. He writes, if you are unable to believe, it is because of your passions. Since reason impels you to believe, and yet you cannot do so. Concentrate then not on convincing yourself by multiplying proofs of God's existence, but by diminishing your passions. You want to find faith, and you do not know the road? You want to be cured of unbelief, and you ask for the remedy? Well then, learn from those who were once bound, like yourself, and who now wager all they have. They behaved as if they did believe. 
This is the same advice that Dostoevsky's guru, Father Zosima, gives to the woman of little faith and the brothers Karamazov. The behavior Pascal mentions is religious behavior, taking holy water, having masses said, and so on. The behavior Father Zosima counsels to the same end is moral behavior, active and indefatigable love of your neighbor. In both cases, living the faith can be a way of getting the faith. Pascal says, that will make you believe quite naturally and will make you more docile, that is, more teachable. But, you say, that is what I am afraid of. He replies, why? What do you have to lose? An atheist once visited the great rabbi and philosopher Martin Buber and demanded that Buber prove the existence of God to him. Buber refused. The atheist got up to leave in anger. As he left, Buber called after him, but can you be sure there is no God? That atheist wrote 40 years later, I am still an atheist, but Buber's question has haunted me every day of my life. The wager has that haunting power. I've spoken too long. It is time for you to write out some questions so that we can have the interesting part of the discussion now. I think people will pass out uh, little cards for you to write questions on. And the brilliant questions will automatically turn to red and, and fire, and I'll see them. Okay, this uh, first question is just by way of uh, summary. What were the names of the five arguments for the existence of God you gave tonight? And are there any other strong arguments? The first cause argument, the argument from design, the argument from conscience, the argument from desire, and Pascal's wager. Yes, there are other strong arguments. My own favorite is the aesthetic argument. I know three ex-atheists that were converted by this argument. There is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, therefore there is a God. You either see that or you don't. There is also, for example, the so-called common consent argument. Uh, 99% of all human beings who have ever walked this planet have believed in some sort of God or gods. If they are wrong, and if atheism is right, then 99% of all human beings have been seriously and literally insane. At least as insane as I would be, as an adult, if I believed in an invisible childhood friend or a 13-foot-high invisible rabbit whom I made the center of my life uh, and said, I love you, I worship you, you are my creator, I adore you, and you are the source of every good. In other words, you have to be something of a snob to be an atheist. Is God existence an a priori assumption, as some Calvinists suggest? Your arguments, then, are merely an affirmation of what is assumed. No, I do not assume the existence of God. I try to prove the existence of God. Psychologically, we do begin by innately believing in God. Nobody is born an atheist. Uh, atheism comes late in a person's life and in the history of the human race. So I would agree with the Calvinist in saying that the onus of proof is on the atheist. But uh, an argument that uses God as a presupposition is not an argument. It begs the question. That's not a fair argument. How can a conscience with absolute authority err? Pascal's wager is criticized, uh, criticizable. God hates gamblers. Ooh, okay. Uh, how do you uh, refute this? Okay, so there's... If you can read this. 
Well, conscience conscience can err and nevertheless have absolute authority because you must always obey your conscience even if it's an erring conscience because you don't know that it's an erring conscience. If I sincerely believe that I ought to join the army and you sincerely believe that you ought to be a draft dodger, then I would be sinning by being a draft dodger and you would be sinning by joining the army. Yet one of us is wrong. So to say that conscience is infallible is different than saying it's authoritative. I should not say that it's infallible, but it's authoritative. And I don't recall reading in scripture the words, God hates gamblers. But I think God is not at all satisfied with gamblers, and he would vastly prefer better motives for believing in him than Pascal's wager. It is a very low and selfish motive, but God as a lover stoops to conquer. How do you deal with the problem of evil, i.e. if God exists, is all-powerful and all-loving, evil exists, therefore God doesn't? Wow. There are at least 24 good proofs for the existence of God. There is only one good proof against the existence of God. Throughout the history of philosophy, there's only one argument which even claims to prove conclusively that there couldn't possibly be a God, rather than just offer some possible alternatives. And that's the argument from evil. If there is infinite goodness, how can there be any evil? If there is a God whose goodness is infinite and whose power is infinite, how come he allows evil? I can't prove my answer to that question, but I can open the door a little bit. I can show, I think, how it is possible to believe without contradiction that evil is real and that God exists. If God's goodness is ultimately love, and if one of the things that love does is affirm the other, and if the other is a human being who is free, then God is going to so respect human freedom that he is going to let us commit evil rather than destroy us or turn us into robots out of his love. Furthermore, a perfectly good and perfectly powerful God would be writing a perfectly good story. In a perfectly good story, good triumphs over evil in the end, but sometimes there are sufferings and villains and monsters and all sorts of adventures in the story. So it is quite possible and responsible and reasonable to believe that we are in such a story and that God is deliberately allowing some evil to creep into his works. He didn't put up the sign saying no snake in the grass in the Garden of Eden because his plan is to bring an even more great and glorious good out of evil. I can't prove that. That's the picture we get. That's the information we get. That's the divine revelation we get. And it's credible. I think I can prove that there is a God, but I can't prove that that's the right answer to evil. I must admit that evil counts against God. Uh, if there are 24 good clues that count for God and only one good clue that counts against him, I think the preponderance of evidence is on his side. I have seen several seminars and read articles on proving the existence of God. But doesn't the idea of proving the existence of God contradict Christian faith? No. Faith is a response to divine revelation. Divine revelation means things God has told us about himself. 
One of the things God has told us about himself is that he created us in his own image as thinking beings. Thus, he teaches us through two different textbooks, reason and faith, or nature and the Bible. And such a teacher cannot contradict himself. Truth cannot contradict truth. Therefore, reason cannot contradict faith. What is the answer to the child's question, if God made us, who made God? The same as the answer to the question, is your typewriter a Republican typewriter or a Democratic typewriter? It's really a silly question. Who made X presupposes that X was made. The meaning of the word God is the being that was not made, but is the first cause, the maker. So it's a misunderstanding of the meaning of the word God. I'm going to try to tie a couple questions together here. If belief in God is so rational, why then do people not believe? What part does faith come into our beliefs? So there's the idea of the rationality there. Have you ever spoken with objectivists? My roommate is objectivist. And they believe that reason and faith are mutually exclusive. That those who are religious give their minds to God and therefore cannot live by rationality. I think I answered the second question already about the contradiction between reason and faith. The first one was what? How was that phrased again? Oh, if belief in God is so rational, why don't people believe in God? Usually not because of careful, sincere, honest, rational investigation of evidence. Usually because God is a big inconvenience. At least the God of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is the God who contradicts a very deep instinct in us, which Christians call original sin, or which you might call original selfishness. We all want to be our own God. We all want to sing Sinatra's song, I did it my way. And unfortunately, that's the song they sing in hell. In heaven, they sing God's way is the best way. So there's a very strong psychological reason for not wanting to believe in God. Especially in America, God is a great bother to your sex life. Good night. Thank you for coming. Okay. um, What about Jesus? Was he God? If so, do we believe in Jesus in order to believe in God? Um, Also, based on that, do you believe that someone who has not accepted Christ as his or her Savior but wagers as to the existence of God, will that person go to heaven when he or she dies? If so, why? Okay. Let me first add one little uh, corollary to my last statement that ultimately God is a great plus to our sex life. That is, people who do it God's way are always in the long run happier. What about Jesus? Is he God? If he isn't, he's the biggest blasphemer or nut or insane egotist who ever lived. But nobody thinks he's that. Even his enemies don't think he's an idiot or a lying, blaspheming, scheming fool. He claimed to be God. 
if he was God, or rather is God, do we have to believe in Jesus in order to believe in God? Those of you who are here this afternoon uh, heard a rather long and complex answer to that question, so let me see if I can summarize it. According to Christians, Jesus is not just a human person. He is a divine person. He is not just a 33-year-long, six-foot-high Jewish carpenter seen by a few thousand people in Palestine long ago. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the mind of God. He is, in New Testament terms, the logos or light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. Therefore, everyone, including an atheist and a pagan and a Hindu and a Buddhist, has contact with Jesus. Uh, On that contact, uh, he will be judged. If, for example, uh, Socrates pursued the truth that he knew with all his heart and worshipped the God that he knew in a rather agnostic way uh, with all his heart, if he did not sin against the light that he had, then if and when he goes to heaven, and I think that's possible but no one knows, he will find that the one who saved him was Jesus. If you were to ask Abraham or Moses or Elijah, do you accept Jesus Christ as your savior? They would not say yes. They would say, I don't know what you're talking about. Yet they were saved. According to Christians, Jesus is the way that we know God. Just as sunlight is the way we know the sun. Made of the same stuff. Jesus claims to be the only savior. He doesn't claim that you have to have accurate theological knowledge of him in order to be saved. God doesn't give you a theology exam at the gate of heaven and let you in only if you get a 70. So objectively, yes, you have to know Jesus. Subjectively and consciously, no. However, if you do know him and reject him, then according to the Bible, you're at least in big trouble. Do you believe that someone who has not accepted Christ but wagers on the existence of God will go to heaven when when they die? Well, I think the low form of the wager, based on a fear of hell, is something that God is not satisfied with, but it pleases him. It's like a toddler's first step. Uh, A parent is not going to be satisfied with that step, but it's going to lead in a certain direction. It's not going to stop there. So I regard the wager not as a, a, a final stage, but as a beginning stage. If it doesn't lead anywhere, if it's purely selfish... If the only thing I'm worried about is avoiding pain, I don't think that's sufficient for salvation. If, however, my wager is a personal relationship, like marriage, well, that's a little different. Every marriage is a wager. No lover comes proposing in syllogisms or with a battery of lawyers with written guarantees. Leap into my arms, and when you do it, you are married. So when you do it, you are saved. Does the Calvinistic idea of total depravity contradict the idea that everyone has a conscience? No, and it didn't for John Calvin. I think what Calvin meant by total depravity was a strictly theological meaning. That is, we're totally unable to save ourselves, and no matter how many good works we do, that can't buy our way into heaven. Well, he's perfectly correct if that's what he means. I don't think Calvin was so foolish as to mean what most people think he meant by total depravity, namely that uh, 
nobody can do any good at all and that we're just as bad as we could possibly be. In fact, Calvin very strongly believed in conscience. By the way, I'm not a Calvinist. If I would like to uh, hear or read these or other arguments, uh, are there any books that you would uh, recommend that you or others have written? C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is the best presentation of the case for Christianity that I've ever read. If you want a book of arguments, my handbook of Christian apologetics, actually uh, the chapter on the arguments for the existence of God was written by uh, my co-writer, Father Teselli, who's a better scholar than I am. Uh, Fundamentals of the Faith, published by Ignatius Press, has a summary of most of the main arguments. And look at the classical sources. Look at Aquinas' Five Ways. Look at uh, 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 Paley's Analogy. Uh, any philosophy professor can, can point you to the good texts. Uh, Richard Dawkins, in his uh, in a recent article in Scientific American, has argued that uh, observed designs that he has observed design in living things such as behaviors, but if they were designed, they were designed cruelly and amorally. I think that's a philosophical mistake because amorality and immorality, such as cruelty, are always destructive of design. For instance, when I'm cruel to you, I might do things like hit you. And when I hit you, I disturb the design inherent in your body. For instance, if I take your eye out, I make it impossible for your eye to function. So evil is always destructive of design. So I think it's self-contradictory to say that evil is part of design. It was, uh, it was said or asked in your final argument that living the faith will make you the faith. Perhaps I've misinterpreted your argument or failed to note it correctly, but is living the faith without first believing in it blind faith? No, it's an experiment. It's the Alka-Seltzer commercial. Try it, you'll like it. It's not the best kind of experiment, but it's better than nothing. And it can be very honest. Uh, in a sense, it's a leap in the dark, but not a total leap in the dark. It's like a blind date that somebody persuades you to take on their authority. And you're not sure, but you try it. Basically, these two questions are asking a similar thing. If consciousness or conscience is a proof for a God, then uh, is it a defeater uh, to have psychopathic individuals or people who are morally or mentally unstable? Well, by definition, somebody who is so mentally unstable that they can't tell right from wrong uh, are people that you want to cure. They're like people who are blind or uh, lame or uh, sick. Uh, they are not functioning in a 
completely human way. So we try to cure them. You don't try to cure an oyster for brain damage. An oyster can't do mathematics. So you give it some operation to put the brain back together so that it can? No. But if you have a blow on the head and the gray matter gets messed up and you can't calculate anymore, you go have an operation and they try to cure you. So if somebody's conscience doesn't work, uh, what do you do? Well, you try to educate them. You try to reform them. You try to rehabilitate them. Uh, in other words, you've got to judge from the normal, natural state of the organism rather than from the abnormal and unnatural state. And we all, in practice, uh, treat the person without a conscience as abnormal and unnatural, and the person with a conscience as normal and natural. Immanuel Kant writes in the categorical imperative that there is a universal law that binds our conscience and causes us to act in rightness. Uh, how would you respond to this, and is this common law theory attributable to instinct of humankind? I think Kant is right that there is a categorical imperative, but his explanation for it is inadequate. It's what he called the autonomy of the will. A law comes from a lawgiver, that is, a will. Uh, which will is this? Kant thought it was our own will rather than the divine will. He called the old theory that morality comes from the divine will the heteronomy of the will. The human will is under the nomos or authority or law of another, a heteros. Whereas he preferred the notion that we are our own lawgiver. Well, the problem with that is if we are our own lawgiver, if we are under a law we made ourselves, why is that law binding? If I invent the rules of a game, then I can dispense myself from the rules of the game by changing them. If I lock myself in a room and keep the key, I'm not really bound. So if I, rather than God, am the author of the moral law, even if I here stand simply for I as an example of humanity at large, then uh, why can't I dispense myself from the law by the same authority with which I bound myself? If someone proved logically that God didn't exist, would you forsake Christianity or have faith that the reasoning was somehow flawed? Besides reason, how do we know God? All right. Those are two different questions. Uh, the first one has a self-contradiction built into it. Because if someone proved logically that God didn't exist, and there's nothing wrong with the proof, and there's no ambiguous term and no false premise and no logical fallacy, then they've proved that God doesn't exist. And if you've, they've proved that God doesn't exist validly, then God doesn't exist. And since Christianity teaches that God does exist, Christianity would then be proved to be false. So how could you then have faith that the reasoning was somehow flawed? If, if you prove it logically, that means the reasoning is not flawed. If the reasoning is flawed, then they haven't proved it logically. They've only seemed to. Besides reason, how do we know God? That's a good question in many ways. We know God intuitively. Some of us know God mystically. We know God personally. We know God by ordinary religious experiment, uh, experience in prayer. Some know God by extraordinary religious experience, mystical states. We know God implicitly in everything that we know. One of the arguments for the existence of God is the epistemological argument, the argument from truth. 
the fallible, finite, changeable, changing human mind is capable of knowing absolute, eternal, certain, unchangeable truth, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. How is that possible? Where are these truths? If they're merely in changing minds, then they must be changing truths. But there are some unchanging truths that we know. Therefore, there must be an unchanging mind. We know God in great art. The Bach argument. Uh, one of the ways I know there is a God is when I surf. Only surfers can understand that. Whether you profess the, quote, Jesus is my Savior, end quote, prayer or not, you are still a part of God. How can a part of God spend eternity in a godless hell? He can't. Uh, I would like to have an interesting ecumenical dialogue with you sometime. Obviously, you are a Hindu rather than a Christian, because a Christian does not believe that we are parts of God, but that we are created by God. Chesterton puts it this way. The God of Oriental religion is like a deity that is endlessly congratulating himself and shaking his own hand. The God of Christianity is like an unselfish deity who, in a strange fit of generosity, cuts off his own left hand so that that hand might, of its own free will, shake hands with him. There's a big difference between pantheism and theism. And therefore, Hindus and Buddhists do not believe in hell. If everything is God, there is no hell. If, on the other hand, God made creatures distinct from himself, which have free will, then there can be a hell. Scratch the doctrine of free will, and underneath it you find the doctrine of the possibility of hell. Why does the existence of God necessitate our worship, obedience, etc.? Could not anger and resentment be valid responses? Sure, if God is the devil, if God is bad, the proper response to, being, to, to badness is anger. If some crooked lawyer gets off the drug dealer that gives drugs to your kid who just took an overdose and died, and if you are not angry at that crooked lawyer, there's something wrong with your morality. So if God is like a drug dealer or a crooked lawyer, then anger is the correct response. If, on the other hand, he is the source of all goodness, then gratitude and love is the correct response. Augustine once summarized the case for and against God in two sentences. If there is no God, why is there good? If there is God, why is there evil? The answer to the second question is a mirror. An atheist once commented that uh, religious belief in a loving God is folly since religion has been the cause of many wars. Can you comment on this paradox? Religion has not caused wars. Irreligion, professed by people who claimed to believe a religion, has been the cause of war. Every major religion in the world uh, teaches peace and not war. So if a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim uh, starts an aggressive war, he does so contrary to his own religion and his own scriptures. In one of my philosophy class discussions, uh, a lady was arguing that if God is omnibenevolent, why did he create a world full of people in hopes that they worship him and carry out his will? Isn't this conceited or selfish? Also, uh, what about causal laws? Is God bound by them? The first question I find astonishing. 
If God is omnibenevolent, why did he create a world full of people in hopes that they carry out his will? Isn't that conceited or selfish? That's like saying, if, Professor Craved, you are a good and unselfish person, then why did you have four children that you have lavished such time and energy and attention and money on all your life? Aren't you conceited or selfish? Very strange thing to say. I don't know what to, how to respond to that. And God is not bound by physical causal laws. He can perform miracles. God is not bound by any law. However, the very nature of God is the source of logical laws. God is consistent with himself, thus the law of identity. God does not contradict himself, therefore the law of non-contradiction. So even God does not, and in a sense cannot, perform a contradiction. However, he can uh, perform miracles because physical causal laws are laws of this possible world. And there are other possible worlds, for instance, one in anti-gravity, uh, in which these physical laws would not apply. But, uh, three more questions here. In, re in uh, relation to Pascal's wager, if you accept God, you limit or bias your perspective. You may lose sight of the real truth if that truth lies elsewhere. That is exactly right. If you accept the truth of any proposition whatsoever, you limit your perspective. If I believe that I exist, I limit my perspective to believing that it is not true that I do not exist. And if it is true that I do not exist, then I have lost sight of the real truth if that truth lies elsewhere. So all you've done is state the logical law of non-contradiction. Substitute anything whatsoever for God and your sentence remains true. If you accept atheism, you limit or bias your perspective. You may lose sight of the real truth if that truth lies elsewhere. If evil is not a part of design, where does it come from in a world made from design? In one sense, that's an extremely simple question to answer from our own experience. In another sense, that's an extremely difficult question to answer from our own experience. The easy way is we all know where most evil, the worst kind of evil, the evil that does the most harm comes from, human selfishness. In a world of saints, even though you'd still have volcanoes and hurricanes and maybe even cancers, uh, it would be almost paradise. But then the question is, but why do we do evil rather than good? Why, despite reason, faith, and experience, despite the repeated experiment of many, many times choosing the good rather than the evil and always finding that it makes you happy in the long run, and the alternative experiment of constantly choosing evil rather than good and always finding that it makes you miserable in the long run, why, after millions of days or thousands of days that you began with prayer and found that this caused joy, and thousands of days that you began by omitting prayer and finding that this caused joylessness, why, after the repeated experiment of verifying the line from Dante that T.S. Eliot says is the profoundest in all of human literature, namely, in God's will, our peace. Why do we continue to try uh, the experiment that never works? 
why having put this car, uh, which Christians call sin, on the road and gassed it up, it's never moved a foot. Do we keep pushing it and expecting it to move? Because we're nuts. That's one of the meanings of, of the doctrine of original sin. We're morally insane. We're also deeply sane. Uh, there's an old Jewish tradition that says God wanted to reveal himself to the world and he wanted to choose a people and he wanted to choose a leader for this people and he knew that the leader would have to know himself too as well as knowing him. So he first went to a Greek philosopher and said, what is man? The Greek philosopher said, man is sweetness and light. God said, don't call me, I'll call you. Then he went to Attila the Hun and said, what is man? And Attila said, man is a wolf, man is a pair of rapacious jaws. Fine, said God, don't call me, I'll call you. Then he went to Abraham and said, what is man? And Abraham said, oh God, don't call me, I don't know what man is. I seem to be a, a, a thousand different things. I seem to be uh, something like a god and something like a wolf. I seem to be a, a jungle of a, of a hundred hungry animals. I'm all confused. God said, good, you shall be my prophet. It's a little good in the worst of us, a little bad in the best of us. Final question, one related, uh, I think, a little bit to application here. Uh, does this God care what I major in and what I do with my education or a simple belief enough and then do what I please? He wants you to major in himself. He wants you to be educated. The word education means to lead out. In order to major in God, you have to be led out of godlessness. In order to major in light, you have to be led out of darkness. Uh, what particular light, what particular colors of the light you want to major in? Sure, he knows everything. He cares about everything. If he cares how many hairs fall from your head, he cares about whether you major in philosophy or sociology.